Good morning again. It's eight minutes after five o'clock here on the Saturday morning show from WGN Radio Chicago. Orion Samuelson with you until six o'clock this morning to talk about the most important industry on the planet. That's agriculture, producing food and clothing and uh, fuel for your tanks. And we like our opportunity to talk about it every Saturday morning here on WGN Radio. Well, as far as uh, my rain gauge in Huntley is concerned, until midnight last night, 1.37 inches of rain in my rain gauge. Since midnight, no rain here at my house. But uh, there may be a few more showers again today. And actually, the rain was, I think, probably welcomed by most uh, gardeners and agricultural producers because, as Jim Fazell often says, once the heavy rains quit, it dries out fairly quickly. And so uh, we're looking at corn and soybean crop conditions that are above a year ago at this time. And uh, let's hope they stay that way without floods and without uh, the uh, winds and that sort of thing that we don't appreciate during our rainstorms. But uh, look for a good day today. You may get rained on a little bit, but uh, not like we did yesterday. 69 degrees on my thermometer in Huntley, Illinois. And Jim Fazell is standing by, and uh, he's going to join us here on the uh, program. So stay with us for what Jim has to offer as far as lawns and trees and gardens. And he'll be with us when we continue on the Saturday morning show. Jim Fazell joins us for his weekly visit on the Saturday morning show. And let's start out by getting the rain count for this week in your rain gauge, Jim. We had about uh, nine-tenths of an inch, which is about what we need for the month or for the week, but we haven't been doing that the rest of the month. How much have you got out there? Well, we have not received much of anything uh, this week, uh, but maybe a little bit yesterday, but nothing to uh, talk about. Yeah, I haven't checked the rain gauge yet this morning, so... um, supposed to have rained last night. I think the pavement's wet out there. I guess it did, but I haven't been out to look. Anyway, uh, excuse me, the uh, the rain gauges uh, don't lie, and, and we're short of moisture a little bit this month after having a super abundance for two months in a row. So we can wait. The, uh, nature will bring the moisture as it needs to, and the forecast says that we're going to have more moisture this week. So we can look forward to that and work around the rain. So what kind of work do we do this coming week in the garden? Plenty of things that need to be done in the in the yard this first summer weekend. In fact, we need to clean up a little bit so that we're ready for the holiday next weekend. Believe it or not, a week from today is the 4th of July. Can you believe that? Nope, I can't. <laughs> I can't either. One of the things that can be done to really shape the yard up, our, our shrubs have been growing for a month and a half, two months, and they tend to get out of shape about this time of year, especially the evergreens. They get these long shoots, uh, and you want to remove those. Same thing with some of the other broadleaf shrubs, but these these need to be taken back individually, individual stems one at a time. And, you know, I use either a hand clippers or having been an old-time rose grower where we always cut the roses out in the greenhouse with a knife, we use a knife 
and a couple of pieces of old garden hose on your index finger and your thumb to protect them. Works very nicely because you can actually catch the thing that you've clipped off and put it in your in your basket or whatever you have so you don't have to rake that stuff off. You remove overly long individual stems. You don't want to shear these plants because it destroys the normal shape and the form of them. The only things you want to shear would be formal hedges, and they can be sheared at this time of year too. Get them back to the size that you want them or maybe a little bit shorter than what you want them because they're going to continue to grow. Broadleaf shrubs, the same thing. Actually, it's a little late to trim lilacs and viburnums as far as the flower buds are concerned because if you take the tips of those stems off, the buds are already formed. But you can cut out the older dead stems that have grown up from the ground, cut them all the way back, and if you have really overly long shoots, just like you did with the evergreens, cut them back to a reasonable length and shake the plants up. Other things that can be done up, keep taking the dead blooms off the annuals. And with the warm weather that we've had and the moisture, they've bloomed very well. Some of them, like some of the marigolds, you really don't take, have to take the flowers off of those. But, but uh, some of the other, other annuals, you really need to take the flowers off. First of all, it looks better. And second of all, it stimulates them to continue, continue flowering. And while you're out there, take the hoe along and weed, hoe out the weeds from your flower, flower beds and your shrub borders. And last, uh, before you forget about it, you probably need to mow and edge the lawn. Edging at this time of year, because it tends to get, the lawn tends to get over the pavements and a little bit out of bounds, edging will really shape it up, not just along the walks and, and street, but also around your shrub borders and around trees. I like to keep a tree ring around a tree so that you don't nick the tree with the mower as you're going by. And this can be done with a garden spade. Just go around and just chop it so that uh, you cut, cut it to a nice even ring. If you can't figure out an even ring, uh, take a garden hose out and roll it around at the right diameter and cut right at the edge of it. Don't cut the garden hose. Cut right at the edge of it to take the grass off. That, that's uh, grown into into your uh, into your beds or your borders. Um, that's that's pretty well what you need to do. There's not a lot of work to do at this time of year, but you know you can make uh, work out of. Uh, you can take time to do a lot of things and and spend time doing them and making a really enjoyable time to be outdoors. And this is the time of year you want to do that. Next and we should do talk, it. We we should do it safely. I take it. Yeah. Definitely that. That's another thing. We have not talked about safety yet uh, this season. Uh, and we take things for granted, a lot of things that are inherently dangerous. We get used to, used to household things like the knives and the cleaners and the boiling water and the medicines and so forth. Also, uh, tools. Gasoline is one thing that, that's so common we forget how dangerous it is. And garden-powered garden equipment, um, these things are extremely useful, and we can use them safely every day, but they can still hurt us if we aren't careful. It's important because safety is a state of mind, so you really need to think before you act. And I know of uh, uh, instances where people rushed in doing, into doing something and were sorry for it afterward because they got some kind of an injury. Sometimes they can be severe. Uh, let's talk about the power equipment a little a little bit. First, they have moving parts like blades and impellers. You need to be sure that when you're operating these, you're aware of that. Don't put your hand in the snowblower or in the, in the power mower. Um, heat. The engines, if you're using an electric or a gasoline-powered one, the engines will get hot. If it's an electric one, that doesn't happen, but this still has the blade that spins around that could hurt you. Uh, then the fuel, the gasoline. The gasoline, we use it all the time. We put it in our cars. We fuel the gasoline into our power mower and so forth, not understanding that 
if you're not really careful, this can cause you some trouble. It can actually flash into flame. If you pour gasoline into your power more when the engine is hot, and it's hot enough, it will, it will fume up. But if there's any spark around, it will light up, and it can cause a lot of, of damage uh, to whatever's around it, including people. Most of these pieces of equipment now have guards on them. Absolutely, be sure that you do not remove those guards. Uh, they're there for a reason. Sometimes they're kind of inconvenient, like on the power mower when it's almost impossible to back up with the mower because the guard's in the way. But those are the things you that you really need to leave on there for your protection and they're to remind you in case you forget that there's a blade under there. One and I like, the, I, I like the other idea that you put uh, in our notes this morning, and that is that you read the instructions on whatever you're going to use, particularly the label on the, uh, on the chemicals that you use. Definitely. Chemicals uh, can be used safely, and we hear all the times about how chemicals may not be, be as safe as they ought to be. Well, they are if you use them correctly, and there's a tremendous amount of money spent on testing these to make sure that they can be used safely. So you do need to read the label. Sometimes that's, that's a little inconvenient to do because even on a uh, household package of uh, some of the insecticides, for instance, there will be pages and pages. Well, you don't need to read the whole thing, but read the safety precautions and read what you can use these materials on and what you cannot use these materials on. Sometimes you can use materials out in the lawn. It won't hurt the grass. Other materials will kill the grass along with every other thing. So you need to read the label for that. For that, but you know, chemicals—they um, uh, change every year. Now, I know that um, Roundup used to be simply glyphosate. Well, it isn't anymore. It has a whole bunch of other materials, all called glyphosate, uh, called Roundup. But you have to look at the label to see if it's actually glyphosate. So read the label. And the times you need to read the label are when you're buying the material, when you're getting ready to mix up the material to use it. And when you're using the material, and then with the cleanup afterwards as well, be sure that you wear the right safety equipment that's required or that's suggested on the label. If you do those things, and the same thing with machinery and tools, if you get a new piece of machinery, read the instructions on how you use it before you use it. It seems like it takes a lot of time because you're in a rush. You brought that saw to use it. You're not buying it to read the label. But a lot of times you need to read the instructions to find out whether it is safe to use and how to use it. Few precautions that you need to follow. If you do that, you can enjoy the the summer. You won't have any injuries to yourself or to other things. And do enjoy the hot weather. It's what we've been waiting all winter for, and here it is. And I have to say congratulations to you and Jane on a great on a grandchild, a great grandchild. Great grandchild number fifteen. Can you believe that, Orion? No, I can't, because I thought you were about 30 years old, so I, I find that hard to believe, but congratulations. Well, well thank you very much. Uh, we're real happy about that. Uh, he's healthy and well, and Mom is too, and uh, we look forward to seeing him. They're out in Colorado. We may get out there when this virus thing gets over with, and, and we hope that's over with pretty quick. Anyway, we want to have you to have a, a very good week, and we're going to have a good week, and enjoy this warm summer weather that we've got here so we'll talk to you on the fourth of july that's right we'll be here ready to go okay that's our visit with jim fazell here on the saturday morning show the saturday morning show at 21 minutes after five o'clock 
And as I mentioned at the beginning of the program this morning, we do have some news about Mirai sweet corn. So we'll share that with you as Gary Pack joins us from Twin Gardens to talk about the sweet corn season when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Several weeks ago, when I made the announcement on the Saturday Morning Show that we would not find Mirai sweet corn at farmers' markets this year, my email and phone barrage just never quit. What do you mean, no Mirai? Well, I decided to put that question to Gary Pack who I consider the godfather of Mirai Sweet Corn with Twin Garden, and uh, that's at Harvard, Illinois. So, Gary, tell me what has happened to Mirai. Well, good morning, Lorian. How are you doing? Um, I don't know. I, most everybody really doesn't realize or didn't realize that Twin Gardens, the base of business at Twin Gardens is growing sweet corn seed. And over the years... Um, uh, the, the seed production has expanded to the point where we were overlapping in uh, labor needs and acreage and different things. And so uh, it came to the point with, uh, with uh, labor challenges and, and a multitude of other things that we had to make a decision basically the 1st of April that we decided uh, in the management team here that we were going to concentrate only on sweet corn seed production because that's basically what our core business was and um you know all the old saying in the business is, is do what you do best and and do it and so uh it was it, honestly and i'm sure you can you can realize this it was one of the hardest decisions that we had to make because we've developed um not only with the the meat right product uh, being basically a, a, the best sweet corn around but many many friends and customers and and acquaintances and and experiences and just so on and on and on but to trade the eight-week um vegetable and sweet corn season to um uh get in the the way of some of the uh, seed harvest uh at in august uh, it was it was a decision we had to make and uh that's that's where we're at, and we are getting a lot of calls too, and and, and it's just uh, it's the part the, the customer part is the hardest part for us, and just dealing with all the friends that we've made over the years. Well, I know that much of the seed goes to Japan because I was at your place at one time sure. when there were buyers from Japan who came over to look at your operation and I guess to place orders for more, but. As the seed business had extended beyond Japan, yes, definitely has in 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 beyond Mirai. So uh, the the Mirai experience of growing the seed has um, enabled us in in to to have more exposure in the sweet corn seed industry, and so we do grow a lot more seed than just Mirai, and uh, and that's I mean it just. It's sort of a, a a plan that is is taken place and then just has happened and it's it's just uh, it's what we do. Well, I think those lovers of Mirai can certainly understand business opportunities and certainly you've had that. How long did it take you to develop the Mirai variety and how many crosses or whatever you had to do? I'd be interested in a quick rundown again on that, right, Gary. Right. You know the, the the concept of 
putting all three sweet corn genes together took about seven generations um, to get to the point where we, we were able to come up uh, in the middle 90s with the first yellow Mirai uh, variety. And so it, it, it takes seven or eight crosses. And, and a lot of uh, uh, breeders have, have done been trying to chase that one and, and come up with that same one. But uh, and from my understanding, not being a sweet corn breeder, that most of the time when you try to mix all three of those genetics together it, it it doesn't it doesn't come out well it just doesn't work but this time it did and and uh, dave mckenzie the breeder the, the friend of ours that was here on the farm that uh that did that uh, you know he had his grandpa grandpa says it was his his wow moment so what is the farm producing this year we have uh, uh sweet corn seed is our is our main uh crop and that's that's where it's staying where our total focus on is on seed production uh being that the seed has to have so much isolation between different hybrids that we have uh, you know another couple thousand acres of soybeans to uh for isolation purposes some hybrids are 660 feet apart and some are up to a mile because of the gmo situations that you know we have to make sure that we're gmo free in a lot of different hybrids so, so that's what's going on there. So who is growing the Mirai from your seed, and how far away is that from where we are? Well, there's there hasn't been a lot of Mirai seed available because of the, the it's, there's there been a little issues with the crops and, and with the seed crops. So there's not a lot of uh, uh, Mirai seed available. That's you know that could change, but for reasons you can understand, I can't really get into that part. Right. But um, the uh, there will be uh, Mirai fresh at the markets this summer, but not near the volume that we had in the past. And I can give you a uh, the name of the farm is Piscasaw, and I don't know if you want how far you want to go into that, but it's Piscasaw dot com, and uh, they will have a handful of markets in the Chicagoland area with Mirai this summer, and they do a really really good job. So that's probably the best news of this conversation. There will be some Mirai available somewhere, so I can right. uh, respond to yeah. those emailers and phone callers. Yes, and it's uh, uh, and I can I can uh, send you an email with the exact uh, website and those kind of things if you want. But still, um, it, it we have fifty seven hundred um, customers and friends on our on our email list, and I put out a. A blast about the same time you and I talked, and and put that that same information in uh, that email. So, um, you know, I, I I don't want to overwhelm them, but and again, it's not going to be the volume that we had or the number of markets, but uh, it, there is a there is a small presence of of Mirai. Well, that is probably the best news of our visit so far this morning. And uh, because even my colleagues at WGN said, what? No Mirai? What are we going to do? <laughs> so. I, I know. I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard on me, too, because I sure enjoyed our visits. And the, the early mornings, as long as I got out of town by, by 6 o'clock and on the way home, right. I was fine. But the early morning visits, and, and you know, it, it is hard. It's, we made a lot of, we had a lot of good uh, relationships and a lot of good friends. Well, we will look forward to uh, finding Mirai when it's available. And one final question. What kind of a crop year so far are you experiencing? Uh, we got off to a rough start, cool and wet, and there's uh, quite a few wet holes. But um, 
after that, the, the crop looks really good right now, and after today, it's going to look a little better because I know everybody around on our farm yep. was getting a little nervous about getting the irrigation going. So uh, that that's not going to have to happen now. But it, I think the crop looks really good right now. And may it stay that way and continued success to you and uh, the folks at Twin Garden. And uh, I'll find some Mirai somewhere, okay? Okay, Horton. Stay in touch, yeah, for sure. For sure, I'll get you some. Will do. Gary Pack, Twin Gardens, with us here on the Saturday Morning Show. You're listening to the Saturday Morning Show, and uh, guess what else? Max Armstrong will be back with us because of the uh, pandemic. We've uh, been doing the broadcast from different locations, but never together. But he will join us together uh, this morning to uh, take a look at uh, some of the market activity this week. WGN Radio Chicago, it's 5.32 here on the Saturday Morning Show, and we say welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this morning I'll share a good news story and some history. With all of the challenging news we've had the past several months, this morning I would like to share with you a feel-good story and some personal history. The feel-good story, first of all. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue last week announced that he'd allocated $1.6 billion to build or improve rural electric infrastructure in 21 states, serving 1 million customers in small businesses and on farms and ranches throughout America. So that was the good news story last week. Second story, a little bit of personal history, and it's on the same subject, because today I'm often asked by young people, what is the biggest improvement you have seen in technology in your lifetime? Well, I can not only answer that, but I can give you the time and the date Because the biggest change in technology, electricity on the farm. It was in the mid-1930s, before World War II, that President Franklin Roosevelt, before the war started, created the Rural Electrification Administration. And what a difference that made. My mother threw away the flat irons that sat on the cook stove. We had a refrigerator to preserve food. We bought a milking machine so I could stop milking cows by hand. And we no longer had to carry a lantern to the barn because we had a yard light. And something that I've never forgotten. At the foot of the stairs to my bedroom in our farm home, I had a switch that when I clicked it, there was light upstairs in my bedroom. Didn't have to carry a lantern or an Aladdin lamp up the steps. So what a difference rural electrification made to anybody who lived in rural America. I remember it well, and I keep telling my grandchildren that without electricity, they wouldn't have computers smartphones, iPads, video games, or any of the other technology that they're enjoying today. And I am grateful the federal government continues to fund the program 
that probably changed life for more people in the United States than anything else. We should not forget that, and we should be grateful that they continue to fund Rural Electric. Be safe, be well. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Nexstar Media Group. So, as I said, Max Armstrong is back with us uh, from North Carolina, where he currently lives, but uh, he has not been coming into the Midwest uh, since the pandemic started, and because not wise to uh, be on airplanes with a lot of different people. But uh, anyway, he'll be back with us uh, to take a look at the market activity with another good friend, Dennis Smith of Archer Daniels Midland ADM Financial Services at uh, 19 minutes before 6 o'clock. Well, it was a week ago, a quarterly hogs and pigs report, and we thought it might be a pretty interesting one, uh, certainly an important one after what the pork industry has gone through this spring. Dennis Smith with Archer Financial Services joins us on the line. I looked over the numbers, Dennis, after that release of the report, and I thought, wait a minute, uh, didn't we have a near disaster in the hog industry this spring? I, I guess I expected to see more of it reflected in the government's numbers. What did they show? Yeah, Max, uh, I was the same way. All hogs and pigs, the inventory is 105% of a year ago, kept for breeding down just 1% at 99% of a year ago, and the kept for market categories at 106% of a year ago. The uh, biggest surprise for me, Max, was that it kept for breeding only down 1%. We know the sow slaughter has been aggressive all year long, but evidently the uh, the the packer large integrator also aggressively retaining gilts for breeding. So what is that Ant- anticipation of continued rampant buying by the Chinese? Is that what's at work here? Uh, I am uh, not sure, uh, Max, how, how to describe it. Uh, it, it. I feel like it's not a, a profitable uh, incentive. Let's put it that way. Um, certainly the market is anticipating more Chinese business. Uh, how long that lasts remains to be seen. But again, given the uh, the situation uh, with the uh, shutdown of the food service and with the uh, the virus impacting the packing plants and the, and the numbers backed up, I would have thought the industry would have reacted differently uh, th- than what these numbers indicate. You mentioned the packing plants. To what degree have they recovered now? And uh, what's the, the percentage of operation uh, of the throughput of the plants compared to normal? Do you know? Well, it looks like we're running about uh, approximately 92 percent, uh, maybe approaching 95 percent uh, of the uh, previous uh, virus uh, kill. Um, so it's been a really impressive recovery. Uh, there's still a lot of labor issues, uh, Max, with a uh, uh, with the boning lines, for example. So they're they're putting employees on the kill line, and, and they're having uh, labor issues doing the further processing, such as removing bones from the hams. So you have a, a tremendous glut of bone end product, uh, and then. Uh, Uh, a tighter supply of the boneless products. So the labor issues remain a real challenge. In fact, I think I saw this week that there have been some lawsuits filed against Packers because of fatalities attributed to uh, to COVID-19 in the the workforce. And I guess that's not 
unexpected, but uh, the president acted to resolve the industry of some of the liability, did he not? Yeah, the, the executive order, Max, as I understand it, sort of uh, shielded the, the packing plants from lawsuits associated with uh, uh, sickness and death from the virus. Um, and I don't know the numbers at the top of my head, but I think the uh, while it's certainly uh, tragic, uh, the, the numbers as compared to the total people that uh, have been infected are actually a very, very low percentage. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the executive order, uh, in my opinion, did shield the uh, packing plants from such lawsuits. And could that then be credited with allowing the packing industry to ramp back up its production far more than was expected? Well, I guess uh, that, that's a possibility, Max, that, that I really had not considered in, until uh, I, I saw this Hog and Pig report uh, again. We uh, we know the sow slaughter was up aggressively all year, and, and that's where the uh, the real uh, uh, surprise came in with the uh, the aggressive nature of the uh, guilt retention. Um, so that also should remove some market hogs from the uh, category, but we're still looking at a cap for marketing category of 106 percent. It's a bullish bunch, apparently, huh? It's, uh, it's difficult to sort out. Uh, we have 12% more hogs right here in front of us. And uh, again, Max, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to, to meet that challenge uh, from, from a processing labor standpoint. So where are the prices for producers in terms of their profitability right now? Uh, is anybody making money in the business? Well, I wouldn't think there's anybody at, at current levels uh, that are profitable right now. And uh, this is a summer market, and that's typically when uh, everyone, uh, even the uh, the high cost producer, the smaller independent, should be making money in the in the summer hog market. But uh, in my opinion, profitability wise is, is a zero right now across the industry. And do you see a period out there when producers could get out of red ink, or is this just going to continue for the? Uh foreseeable future as you see it well max uh, a kept for breeding uh, down just one percent is actually not even a contraction because that translates into record large production for next year when you factor in the efficiencies in the industry in other words the the, the rising consistently rising pigs per litter uh, so uh, barring some uh, just a continued ramp up of business uh, whether it be, uh, or I should say demand, whether it be food service demand in the U.S. market or export business, I, I, I cannot see a, an opportunity here for, for a, a, a rosy price picture. Much uh, has been said about direct farm-to-consumer marketing, and we know there are some producers who are gearing up to do that, locker plants uh, that want to expand their businesses, and in small towns, they've found just rampant demand for whatever they can process locally. People continue to talk about this. In reality, Dennis, this is going to be a drop in the bucket, isn't it, in terms of the total demand? I mean, we we can talk all we want to about small-town locker plants, and it will be opportunity for somebody, but in terms of what is needed, it's still going to be minuscule, will it not? Yeah, I I don't see how that can uh, sort of uh, bail out the industry, so to speak, as far as the the labor issues and the processing issues at, at hand. 
Uh, yeah, these small operations, I am told, are booked for the rest of the year. Right. If you want to have a, a single hog uh, processed or, or a, a couple of hogs or even a half a hog. Uh, so th- that's uh, interesting and good uh, business. Uh, but it, you know, on the scale of the, the whole industry, I don't think it's a game changer. What about the consumer supply and price? I've seen great variability in the price, uh, but uh, my son-in-law in North Carolina uh, purchased some pork ribs here recently. They were loaded with meat. They were excellent ribs. They were just uh, fantastic. And prices were up there, but they, they weren't uh, sky high. What are we seeing nationwide? Well, nationwide, I think there is a problem in that, uh, you know, during March, when the wholesale pork prices skyrocketed, along with beef prices, uh, retailers, uh, of course, were, were stung as they uh, secured product, and they were very quick to, to, to raise, in fact, literally jack up retail meat prices. Mm-hmm. They're still working through a lot of this expensive inventory. At the same time, a lot of the big box retailers, I am told, are still limiting the number of packages that consumers can buy. So price is is rationing the supply and, and now uh, artificial ration by uh, by limiting the number of packages that can be bought. At the same time, wholesale product has collapsed. So so we really have retail prices working against the hog producer right now. And uh, retailers then are uh, we assume pocketing some profits in that way. Uh, well, uh, partially so, but again, they are still working off the high-priced product. Uh, it depends on how quickly they lower retail prices now that they have an opportunity to begin uh, securing a much cheaper product line. We really need to see those retail prices come down quickly. It was agonizing for producers to have to euthanize hogs when there simply wasn't the capacity in plants. Is that still going on, Dennis, in some instances? And do we know the degree to which the euthanization took place? How many head, for example? No, I cannot get a handle. I cannot get an answer from anybody in the industry regarding that. I had heard the National Pork Producers Council was going to come up with a number, something they could present to the government for indemnity payments. But I've not heard or seen any solid evidence of the numbers put down. But uh, we know it occurred to some degree, but again, uh, both from a fat hog standpoint and as well as from a a baby pig standpoint. So uh, hogs going out of the barn and hogs coming into the barn, but uh, we cannot quantify such uh, measures. That's been tough uh, for the producers uh, to have to endure something like that, to be sure, among with all of the other challenges they have. uh, You have uh, many years of experience in sorting it out, and I suspect uh, for you, Dennis, personally, it's Never been more challenging, has it? It's never been more challenging, never been more confusing. At times, uh, you feel like you're a rookie in the business, like you you know absolutely nothing. That's how challenging, confusing, and uncertain this uh, hog market has been. We appreciate your time as always. Thanks a lot, Dennis. Take care. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Dennis Smith with Archer Financial Services. It's 11 minutes before 6 o'clock and the sun getting ready to make its appearance here in the Midwest. And uh, we will have some shower activity again today, but uh, probably not as much as we saw yesterday. It's interesting how times change because uh, 
for most of the years that I've been a farm broadcaster, the first numbers I'd want to see in the morning when I'd get to the office and to the studio were the market numbers. How much did cattle bring in hogs and milk and that sort of thing? But now, one of the first items I see in the morning when I turn on the Reuter computer machine where I get my news is the death toll from the coronavirus. And uh, looking at this morning, this is the story. Just briefly, more than 9.8 million people have been reported to be infected by the novel coronavirus globally. And according to the Reuters tally, 493,000 people have died. Infections have been reported in more than 210 countries and territories since the first cases were identified in China in December of last year. And the uh, statistic that I check every morning is the deaths per 10,000 inhabitants. And in the United States, 3.8 deaths per 10,000 inhabitants. But then you take a look at some of the European countries, particularly we have the United Kingdom with the deaths 43,414, or six and a half deaths per 10,000 inhabitants. You have Spain with six deaths per 10,000 inhabitants. And you have Italy with 5.7 deaths per 10,000 people. France with 4.45 deaths per 10,000 people. And on and on it goes. It's just another statistic that we have to check every morning as we come into the office and the studio. At uh, eight minutes before six o'clock news time, uh, let's put Max to work again a little bit this morning and uh, get a look through his eyes at our crop conditions. Max? Every weekend we check in with a technical service representative of BASF, and Kurt Martins is out there uh, probably looking at some crop plots somewhere. I would imagine that they are, there are some on farms, there are some... Maybe at seed dealerships, maybe uh, university campuses. Did we find you at one of those places today, Kurt? Sure did. I'm down here at uh, Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois, checking out a little bit of uh, some of my research plots I got down here. What are you watching in those plots? What are some of the specific things that you look for in, in terms of performance? I, I would imagine you, you do side-by-sides with fungicides, do you not? We've got some of that going on down here. We we also have uh, testing of some of our uh potentially new new herbicides and uh in, in general just just looking at efficacy out of out of our current lineup as well in a plot such as that one uh, at western illinois university at macomb would you be testing there would you be looking for results on some products that maybe aren't yet available in other words are there some field trials uh, in that kind of a setting before farmers have access to them yeah net that's normal protocol, especially for the job that I have being you know tech service rep with BASF. We get the opportunity to test our upcoming products about two to three years out before they're launched to the public. We get to go to our, our university cooperators, like I'm doing here at Western Illinois University, and so they get to they get to spray them and they get to rate them and they get to look at them, handle them, uh, you know, before the public does. So we get we get really good information 
you know, from those cooperators because they get, get to look at them before we launch the products. So in this particular case, the university experts there at Western are working with you. Uh, they're looking at the product, they're applying, they're giving you feedback, and, and maybe walking uh, the rows uh, just to visit with you about what they see happening there. Definitely. We work really close with, with all of our universities across the, across the U.S., across North America, because our, our Canadian counterparts do the, do the same. And again, that allows uh, other folks to get their, their hands on, their eyes on them, and, and get us some really good data and information on them. You say really good data. That also uh, uh, carries credibility, does it not, when you have a third party who is evaluating products and then those results get shared with growers? Always. Uh, as, as a grower, if I put my farmer hat on, I want data from third-party uh, folks, uh, third-party trials, because that's going to be unbiased information there, and, that, and that's going to be the data that's going to help a, a, a grower or a farmer choose products that are going to work great on their farm. There's so much stuff that comes out to the farmer to evaluate. And of course, a company, understandably, is always trying to put its product at the best light. But then when you have a, a presumably unbiased third party weighing in saying, hey, this stuff is good, that carries a lot of weight, doesn't it? It always does. What are some of the things that you're seeing out there right now at this stage of the season? I was uh, I was in some fields near Princeton, Illinois, a week ago, and while the crops were a little bit behind, uh, that was noticeable, but they look pretty good, actually. Yeah, they, they sure do. They're, they're really coming around. i got to tell you, Max, the crops look phenomenal in eastern Iowa that I, that I cover. Uh, we're, we're coming along great in western Illinois. I've been spending some time up in southern Wisconsin, so really coming along really good there. A lot of soybeans to be sprayed yet, and so I'm encouraging farmers that, you know, got some layered planted beans, hey, you need to put that layered residual in there with your post application and, you know, putting in some, like, 10 ounces of outlook, that's going to allow us to get residual for maybe those late emerging water hemp until the soybeans are able to canopy. Remember, when we're combating water hemp, our goal is to keep a residual on or keep them controlled until the soybeans reach canopy. Because once they reach canopy, we shut the sunlight off to the soil surface, and that's going to stop our water hemp from germinating. We appreciate the visit as always, Kurt. Thanks. Uh, We'll check in with you next week. Thanks, Max. Kurt Martin's BASF Technical Service Representative. We are coming into the county and state fair season, but what a different season it's going to be this year. My only advice is to stay in touch with your county fair people and your state fair people to make sure you don't drive to a fair and find there really isn't. And then this week, This announcement came from the National FFA Organization. It announced the 2020 National FFA Convention and Expo in Indianapolis will be held virtually. And at the same time, the organization also extended its uh, contract with the host city of Indianapolis to 2033. But the FFA Convention this year will be done virtually. There will not be an auditorium or the Lucas Oil Stadium full of blue-jacketed FFA members because they'll be attending by television. So that's the latest news on the cancellations or the postponements that we have in just about everything that we do in the country in this time of the year. Our thanks to Bob Ferguson, the engineer who makes sure it all comes together. And of course, as always, thanks to you for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show.